It was freezing cold in Dallas when I made my getaway. I outran a cold front when I gave my truck the reins. Barreling down I 35 with one thought now, on Katie, my mind. Bar the door. There is Forget something the race, that I totally forgot space, to get to on Monday and Tuesday. Bringing it to you now, you may not know this name, but you need to begin to know it, and it is the name of Jonathan Jenkins. That's right, Jonathan Jenkins, an independent who tried to run in the U.S. Senate race and is now calling foul, and it could turn the U.S. Senate race between Ted Cruz, the Republican incumbent, and Democratic challenger Beto O'Rourke on its head. And I was remiss to get to it, but we will get to it. But first, let me say, hey there, howdy. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for going ahead and getting a co-worker's phone or getting a family member's phone and, and subscribing to the Other Side of Texas podcast, turning them on every day, 5 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time out of AM 580 Lubbock and OtherSideOfTexas.com. I'm your host, Jay West Texas Leeson, broadcasting from the Racer Car Wash Studios. Racer Car Wash voted Lubbock's best wash for five years running. Step into and stop into one of its five convenient locations across Hub City for the best wash around, guaranteed. You'll see me there. Maybe we can hang out. RacerWash.com. So Jonathan Jenkins is, and I've checked on his background, seems to be pretty radically moderate and appealing to uh, more moderate Republicans in Texas. And the story comes out, and this was on Saturday. So over the weekend, this story breaks. Jonathan Jenkins, this is Patrick Svitek, in the Texas Tribune headline, after failing to crash Texas's U.S. Senate race, independent candidate alleges his petition firm and the Cruz campaign derailed him. So, do you smell that smell? That's not pride messing with you. That's collusion messing with the race. So the allegation goes. When independent U.S. Senate candidate Jonathan Jenkins missed the filing deadline for November ballot last month, it surprised political observers who had been keeping an eye on his Texas run. I know people who've met Jenkins. He's been pretty under the radar. It costs a lot of money to make your name in Texas, but he was making the stops, had had a full-out bus that he was driving around in. Uh, Jenkins, a Euless tech entrepreneur, seemed to be running a credible, if unusual, campaign. And he had professed full confidence he would get more than 47,000 signatures needed to qualify for the ballot. Yet the deadline, June 21, came and went without Jenkins submitting the signatures. And he and his staff went dark for days. Now, Jenkins is speaking out, alleging, and this is all in an FEC complaint, alleging that the signature gathering 
firm he hired misled him about the progress of the petition drive and that associates of the Republican incumbent, Senator Ted Cruz, meddled in the effort to keep Jenkins off the ballot. All this occurred while Jenkins paid over $350,000 to the firm, California-based Arno Petition Consultant. So cue the news music. There it is. Now, that is according to an election complaint Jenkins has filed, not with the FEC, excuse me, I got in front of myself, the Texas Secretary of State accusing the Cruz campaign of a, quote, coordinated and deliberate attack against the petition drive. The complaint does not cite a specific law that Jenkins believes the Cruz campaign broke, but it asks the Secretary of State's office to investigate the allegations and refer the matter to the State Attorney General. Withholding comment, Jenkins has said he plans to look into, quote, all other legal remedies available. Arno and its head, Michael Arno, did not return multiple messages seeking comment on Jenkins's complaint while Cruz's campaign responded to it in a statement. Quote, the rigors of democracy aren't cut out for everyone. Cruz strategist Jeff Rose said. It sounds like he proved his petition firm the old axiom, there's a sucker born every minute. He should have gone out and collected the signatures with volunteers like everyone else does, not hired a band of out-of-state petitioners. Jenkins was unconventional from the start. He, backed, he was backed by a for-profit company called the Indy Party, which has gotten millions of dollars from startup investors and which Jenkins founded before launching his Senate run. The Peculiar setup drew a Federal Election Commission complaint last month from Harris County GOP Chairman Paul Simpson, who alleged the Indy Party was illegally giving corporate contributions to the Jenkins campaign and coordinating with it, amongst other things. Jenkins's complaint acknowledges a close relationship between the Indy Party and his campaign, saying the company retained Arno in April to gather more than enough signatures to make the ballot in Texas, Arno was contacted or contracted, excuse me, to collect the signatures at a rate of $7.50 each and submit weekly invoices reflecting how many signatures it got the previous week, according to the complaint. And this is it. Yet, as the June 21 deadline got closer, Jenkins began to have communication problems with Arno and concerned, grew concerned that the firm was not following through with its commitment. Jenkins says in the complaint, hours before the deadline, Jenkins received a package of nomination petitions from Arno and Womp Womp was told it contained only 35,500 signatures, far short of the required amount according to the complaint. Now, the story goes on, but you gather the story at this point. You're with the smartest audience on the most talked about afternoon radio show in West Texas or on the other side of Texas. A couple of things. One is that Jenkins has, from the beginning, made a claim that he wants to run 
against, uh, quote, Texans deserve real choices on the ballot instead of having democracy dictated to them by two political parties. Okay, there's the independent speech. And then this, we need a senator who will vote in the best interest of their constituents and not use the office as a stepping stone. That's how Jenkins has described his motivation. So a couple of questions here. Let's analyze it. One, what does the Secretary of State do with this? If anything, I uh, believe that, that he wants to be on the ballot. So what will they do given essentially collusion charges between the Cruz campaign and his signature petitioners? Uh, number two, and this is the bigger point, what does Beto O'Rourke do about this? And my understanding is that, well, my understanding on the Beto O'Rourke front is that they're looking closely at this. I think that Beto O'Rourke's problem, and I've said this before on the show, the more he gets away from running as the Kennedy Kennedy boy in exile, uh, the more he gets away from running just from uh, essentially a populist vein, the more trouble he gets into, uh, the more ideological he becomes, uh, the more trouble he gets into. But that analysis for another time, if he does nothing about it, then Cruz, of course, has to do nothing about it. But if O'Rourke does speak up to it, because it would make sense, the narrative, let me just say, the narrative makes sense that, that Cruz would be involved. It, it's not illogical. Now, it is an allegation, to be clear, but it's not illogical to say, because polls show as much right now. There is such a, a that race, I wouldn't call it neck and neck, but it's close enough that if you had an independent figure in that race Ted Cruz could meet George H.W. Bush's demise via Ross Perot if you can feel what I'm throwing down there there is not room for an independent in that race who could capture you know you go in and you say look and you're behind the curtain and you say look I don't like Cruz I'm supposed to vote for Cruz but the curtain's drawn. I can't quite bring myself to go for O'Rourke. So what's the middle ground? And lots of people might compromise there. And that was the problem that Jenkins could present with the race. I'm just, I'm not Jeff Rowe. I'm just thinking about it strategically. But it also makes sense, not just in the narrative, but within Cruz's character and this is the problem with you know to the charge that Jenkins threw out that he was running as uh, someone who could uh, that Cruz has just used this as a step stool uh, a stepping stone to use his words and I think fairly he threw it at O'Rourke too that lots of people believe that Beto O'Rourke win or lose could be a player for, and look, I'm just giving you reality. He's made a name now. I've read, I've seen pictures and heard from people that there are Beto O'Rourke yard signs up 
in the Northwest and in Colorado and in other places, which sounds crazy, but that's the kind of appeal. You know, it's been a mouth watering campaign for a lot of media. He's, he's very explicit. He gives his thoughts and, and does it. And I've sat across the table from him. Does it like a guy that you're sitting at the bar with? But there are a lot of people think that he could run in an Obama vein, a, a relatively unknown, and run in an Obama that, like, this is essentially uh, the Democratic National Convention speech that Barack Obama gave, that we aren't red or, or blue, we're red, white, and blue. So I think the charge is fair at Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz stepping stone. Now, O'Rourke has said he wouldn't do that, but the problem is, is that Cruz has done that, and he did it in 2016. And this is where I want to bring this thing full circle, is to say that Cruz stymied his name in that presidential run. And if you're looking at this Jonathan Jenkins guy and you're saying, wait, what are you saying exactly? You're saying that that he held you from getting 12,000 more votes? You know, it's a fair question. Why didn't you go get the vote yourself? And, but that's not the way that politics works. I mean, if you've ever been inside campaigns or cover campaigns, everything's run by data people. The things that you read on social media almost never are written by the candidate themselves. The polls that they're running on are polls that draw out, like you may not know this, but there are 20, 40,000 public data points on you right now. From what you listen to, to what you drive, to your record of ownership and the sort of uh, the sort of permits you've drawn to, I mean, there everything is out there. And believe you me, there are ways to database that. And that's how campaigns, I, and I just think if people really knew that the way campaigns work, they might be a little even more disgusted at democracy and voter turnout might go from 9% down to 6%. But you, st you should still vote. Don't hear me say you shouldn't vote. But back to 2016, Cruz has used this as a stepping stone, and it came as a detriment to his brand. Cruz has had to rebrand himself after 2016, and it began with a tour of West Texas agriculture and has gone from there. But we all recall, its I mean, it's not very far back in our memory banks, Marco Rubio in Iowa drawing ire in, I think it was late 2015, about what Cruz had done in a mailing campaign there in Iowa against him. Ben Carson later spoke up, and before he was HUD secretary, whenever he was just a candidate, that I've got a real problem with Ted Cruz. And then, of course, and this is the main thing, there's this about Cruz and whether he can be believed in instances like this. I don't believe, though, out of virtue, we should give people the opportunity to meet our worst expectations, even whenever it comes from accusations from Jonathan Jenkins. The problem is, is that people have short memories and they have a suspicion of Cruz. This is not a pro or anti Cruz monologue. It's just the facts people have a short-term memory, and more than anything, they remember this. In the case of Lion Ted Cruz, Lion Ted, 
Lies. Oh, he lies. You know, Ted, he brings the Bible, holds it high, puts it down. The old adage that my grandmother gave me, and it's that you give people the opportunity to meet your worst expectation. And while Trump was being flamboyant, while he was trying to peg Lion Ted and Little Marco and, and all those things, there were still substantial evidences along the way, like I said, with Carson and with Rubio and others speaking out. And so I think that Jenkins may be given an opportunity to be heard, even as an unheard of, when he brings allegations of corruption. And this is just simply based upon Cruz's black eye in the public that still remains black. And Cruz did things to remediate his image after 2016. One of his first things was to do something that he had not done before. And that's come to West Texas on an agricultural tour, but there still is a suspicion of Cruz. And this is not again, not pro or anti Cruz. It's just, you know, there is no context in politics. There's only reality and people remember what they remember. And I, do believe that Jenkins could become, and, and this story could become, a, uh, a factor in the race. I, I think that to be plain and simple. So that news we missed, that news we've now addressed, and we'll see how all parties involved play it uh, going forward. And speaking of going forward, Ross Ramsey coming up after the break. My counselor, the Texas professor of politics there, the executive editor of the Texas Tribune. We're going to talk about the fallout of the migrant child separations. One of the most cluster, you know what, uh, policy positions I've seen in a long time. Something that's been walked back. And so now how are we going to reunite these uh, families, these parents with their children? Plus, Ross Ramsey, on the impact of Trump's uh, Supreme Court nominee, and how that could impact Texas politics as we roll into the next legislature beginning in January. Bills will begin uh, right around Thanksgiving, begin to uh, be formulated and roll in. And plus, I told you that the race to watch in Texas, it's easy to get distracted on the national level with Cruz and O'Rourke. But the race to watch in Texas is Mike Collier, the Democratic candidate for lieutenant governor, uh, new polls showing that there's little breathing room between he and the incumbent Republican Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Collier comes on to discuss the race and where he stands in that race and what he thinks will go going forward. We'll see if we think he's right or wrong. Well, it's Wednesday, which means we get to check in with the professor. He is my counselor as well of Counselor of Texas Politics, Ross Ramsey, Executive Editor of the Texas Tribune. How's your summer, Ross Ramsey? It's hot. It's doing just like what it's supposed to do. It's hot in Texas. It's pretty nice. A little bit laid back, not too laid back. Whenever, you, whenever you look at what the, how the temperature in Austin, what's it really feel like today? You know, it's usually good for about six or eight degrees hotter than whatever the thermometer says. I'm still, you know... I, you know, I was born in the Panhandle and raised in El Paso, and I can still feel every single percentage of humidity. No, it's so yeah, yeah. I I've worn a felt hat down there before, and um, you sweat quite sort a of bit. drooped at the end of the day a little bit, a <laughs> little bit. So, Ross, I want to talk to you about 
some perspective, historical, but also national, and then into Texas. Let's talk about the ethics. Let's just start with the ethics of, you've written a couple of pieces now about the migrant separations. Um, right. The title of the piece was a good title. It was, uh, if kids separated from their parents can't hold our attention, what will? Talk about the critique that you had in that piece. Well, you know, it's a critique, you know, sort, sort of of the news media and of the public all at the same time. And it's about our short attention spans and about, you know, problems that have, you know, that require some time and some thought and some conversation uh, tend to slip away really quickly. The one that's like, uh, you know, a perennial uh, is, you know, what are you going to do about uh, gun violence in schools, you know, whichever side of that you're on, have you stay, kept your attention on that long enough to do anything about it? And the latest one is this uh, thing with the kids on the border. And I noticed last week that the story was starting to fall to the side in conversations about other things that were pressing in, you know, whether it was Supreme Court justices leaving the court or whatever it was. And, you know, the people that are in the middle of this um, thing on the border are still down there and they're still in the same predicament that they were in two days ago. And our attention was ebbing a little bit. And that was a little bit of a lament about that. Hmm. And, but what will, nothing will, right? I mean, it's, what is that cartoon that my kids, go ahead, go ahead. Well, there's a cartoon that my kids, I can't, I think it's a Pixar movie where the dog, maybe it's an up and the dog says squirrel. Like immediately, all his attention is distracted to the possibility of a squirrel, no matter what was in front of him. And so I'm right. sympathetic with your critique there, that we can't stay fixed on something. But do you think it's because we can't have a conversation at this point between left and right in this country? No, I think that this, you know, this one has a lot of moving parts in it. You can be for, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit after the last University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll where we saw that, you know, a particular group was having a particular reaction to these separations, and it was Republican women. And the the movement of Republican women on that issue, you know, describes in some large measure why so many Republican politicians had a position and then took a turn or a modification after they had listened to the public a little bit. Republican women were not happy with the separations, but at the same time, those same voters are very strongly for strong immigration laws and enforcement and border security. So it wasn't that they were changing their mind about immigration or changing their minds about border security. They just didn't like the separations. And so, you know, that's one way to say when you look at a problem like this, you're looking at several layers of something and that, you know, a reaction to part of it isn't necessarily indicate a reaction to all of it. And that, I think the way to sort these things out in a partisan way is to say, well, let's just talk about this piece of it and, you know, decide where we are on that and what we're going to do about it. We've largely done that. I mean, you know, the outcry about separating families was pretty strong, very strong from Democrats, pretty strong from an awful lot of Republicans, enough to turn the tide to a point where they're trying to figure out how to get these people back together without letting them off the hook on whether they broke the law or not, or whether they ought to be in this country or not. And, mm -hmm. you know, you just have to sort these things out 
but that's the kind of thing that requires your attention for a for a for a period of time. And if you move on to something else, you never solve these problems. You just come back around when it flares up again. Yeah, another flare up, and it does flare up. Some uh, some research here. Doug from Up, that's the name of the dog. Doug always yelled squirrel. Um, the on the migrant issue, the migrant separation. Right. Can you tell me? I would criticize that. I voted for Trump, and I I praise him when he needs praising, and I blister when I think there needs to be a blister to the extent that I'm able to give him a blistering. But I have not seen a policy blow up like like this one did. It was just a complete disaster. Have you seen anything like it? Yeah, things like this happen from time to time. I mean, it's an unintended consequence. They said, you know, look, we need to... You know, the thought process is pretty easy to take apart. They said we need to stop these kinds of migrations and get a grip on this. So we're going to charge people who come into the country illegally with criminal under criminal law rather than civil law. And that triggers a whole different level of and kind of severity. One of the effects of that is if you're charged with a crime, if you're arrested for drunk driving or something like that, they put you in jail and they take your kids away from you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not in a position where, you know, there's someone else, some other adult in your home to take care of the kids while you're in jail for committing a crime, you know, that's foster care and all of those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. it pushed them into that realm. It pushed a bunch of people into that realm very quickly. And the government wasn't set up, A, to take care of them. And, you know, you got the immediate impression that this was something they hadn't thought about. And listening to the way this has gone in court, you know, the reunifications and all the other court actions around it, mm-hmm. it's clear the government didn't have a really good plan in place. Yeah, and they got caught short, and they got caught short with a problem that involved, you know, little kids. And mm-hmm. that's just untenable for a lot of people to see, you know, kids in pain like that, mothers in pain like that. Now, it is true that there are a lot of other things going on. There's human trafficking in here. There is illegal immigration in here. There's, you know, it, there's all kinds of problems around it. But that particular aspect of it with the separated families and, you know, the kind of um, that kind of emotional anguish that everybody can understand really quickly was a political grass fire. Yeah, and I get Ross Ramsey here with us, executive editor of the Texas Tribune. My critique there of cluster segues into the piece that you put out yesterday, and this is where you know, like we have these arguments sometimes, and this is a classic like cable news talking heads going back and forth, where they'll say, "Well, can you if George W. Bush would have done that, you guys would have lost your minds, or Barack Obama would have done that, you guys would have lost your minds." Well. Here you've got a Republican administration that has botched a major program by, I think, virtue of what you just said, not thinking it through. In your piece yesterday, do the feds have a plan to reunite migrant families? We're about to find out. How good or bad do you think this reunification is going to go? You know, I think they've got a lot of problems. The, The judge in this case split the kids into two groups and said, you need to reunite the kids under five years old with their parents um, by Tuesday of this week. And, you know, doesn't look like that's going to happen. They've got, they did two on Monday. They were, uh, you know, 
anticipating doing about you know 60% or something like that on Tuesday, and we'll see where they are as the week goes on. But that was the first group, and then How the other group there, was all though, the other. Ross? Well, that's that's where I'm going. Oh, you know, there were man. about a hundred of those kids. Hundred and two, I think, was the number they gave the court. But there were another two thousand to three thousand kids who are minors who are five years old or older. And if you have this big of a problem with the the toddlers, you know, you can only imagine what the problem is with with the bigger kids. And you know, there's just you know, like there's a there's a basic fundamental bureaucratic failure to say. This kid came in with that adult. That kid came in with this adult, mm. and so on down the line. They're trying to sort out a giant mess, and you know, with varying degrees of uh, of success. Yeah. So you say two to three thousand. They don't have an exact right. number. No, they popped up. Uh, they popped up different numbers along the way. What the government told the judge in court when they were hearing this was that there are, and what the HHS secretary said. Um, Azar said was under 3,000. They previously said more than 2,000. So we're in that ballpark. Yeah, I mean, it's that margin of 1,000. The possibility that we could lose 1,000 kids. Now, look, I understand the trafficking thing. And I understand we've been talking about illegal immigration since it became inconvenient, you know, whenever the cartels rose up. So we've been having this conversation for a long time. But I'm just thinking as a news editor, that's probably the most pressing story out there is where are these kids? Well, it's, you know, they know where the kids are. They know where the adults are. They're not, they're just, they just don't know which ones go with which one. Yeah. Well, um, which is, you know, I guess we're saying the same thing. And, and if you're gonna, and if you're going to go to the next step, which whatever that is, you know, this level of enforcement, that deportment, you know, um, whatever you're going to do with these people who came into this country, um, you know, whether you decide that this was an asylum and we ought to let them stay or this was an illegal entry and we ought to make them go, you know, you, you created this second problem that's not only a, you know, terrible logistical problem and an immigration problem, it turns out to be a terrible political problem as well. It's mm. turned it into, uh, you know, as you said, a cluster. Mm. Ross Ramsey, tell me your thoughts Monday night. It's like, Monday night reality television, we're going to do prime time announcement. And yeah, people have criticized this as reality TV, and I've just called it that. But really, I was telling my wife last night, who is totally apolitical, that this is a huge event, I think, for the country. Probably the biggest thing that's that's happened politically since 9-11 and, and will have bearing for decades to come, and that being the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh. What do you think about Kavanaugh and what do you think about the event as a whole? Uh, I think it's important. I don't know if it's the most important thing since 9-11. Uh, you're changing, uh, you're trading a conservative justice who's been a swing vote on some social issues with a judge who is conservative and clerked for the judge you're replacing. I think it remains to be seen, you know, over the next five or ten years, if Kavanaugh is uh, confirmed to see whether he's significantly different than the judge he's replacing. Uh, and I don't know that that case has been, you know, sufficiently made yet. He may turn out to be, you know, uh, like the guy he, he worked for, like, um, like Kennedy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this isn't like replacing, 
you know, a liberal on the court with a conservative, you're replacing a conservative with somebody who's, you know, arguably a shade more conservative or conservative in a different way. It's, you know, I I don't know that this changes the makeup of the court. You know, there are a number of decisions where Kennedy, the outgoing justice, has been the swing vote. And, you know, notably on uh, same-sex marriage, on um, some abortion cases and some things like that. But there are a lot of places where he's been, you know, a, you know, straight up conservative and, you know, like Citizens United and some things like that. So, you know, I think this is a little bit of a mixed bag. It's a pitched fight because we're right before we're coming into a big election, Trump's first midterm, Congress, and in particular, the Senate that will confirm this judge is, or not confirm this judge, is on the bubble as to whether it's going to be a Democratic or Republican Senate uh, after November. And there's a lot at stake in the Supreme Court appointment and confirmation process, you know, attenuates that that election fight. You know, there's a lot to talk about with this judge in the context of this or that Senate race in states where the Republicans and the Democrats are competitive. Yeah, it's some really good perspective, Ross. I think that conservatives thought that they had a ringer with uh, with Kennedy himself, and he definitely split on the social issues that have driven the headlines over the last few years, for sure. Right. Um, two Texas points that I want to draw out from this and hear from you on is, I was really surprised at why do why do so many people on the right dislike John Cornyn to the extent when John, Cornyn says something very reasonable a week or two ago, and it was, please don't appoint somebody with a paper trail, because he knows that they're just one Republican short of not getting this confirmation. But people made it out like John Cornyn was a pro-choice monster. Well, you know, I'm not going to argue for or against the people that, you know, go crazy whenever, you know, something happens in Washington. What Cornyn was arguing in part (laughs) was, you know, if you think this out, um, Cornyn's been up there for a while, and he's watched some of these things, and he knows that time is short. The Republicans are in something of the situation the Democrats were in with Merrick Garland um, before Trump was elected. Um, Mm -hmm. The clock is running on these guys, and you make an appointment in July of an election year, and you just have, you know, relatively speaking, you just have a second to either confirm that guy or live with maybe a Democratic Senate. So Cornyn would like for this to be smooth and quick so that they can get it out of the way before November. And somebody with a paper trail and a long fight might ultimately be, you know, confirmable or or the next justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. But the clock is ticking, and Cornyn would like to get this out of the way as quickly as possible, you know. And, you know, he wants somebody who's easy to confirm. And I think that's really what he was arguing. You know, he might not have been that articulate about it, might not have wanted to put that sharp a point on it. But the Republicans' best chance of getting their judge confirmed is to do it before the elections take place. After the elections, if the Republicans win, it turns out it was no sweat. But if the Republicans lose, the next judge that Trump appoints is going to have to be somebody acceptable to a Democratic majority. And, you know, the Cornyns of the world don't want to take that chance. Hmm. So you just laid caution to, you don't know exactly what you're getting with the justice, but there's already, I see on social media uh, for sure, there's already a push um, 
by some in Texas to go all the way after abortion, assuming that Brett Kavanaugh would be in the camp of overturning Roe v. Wade. With the abortion, what are some other issues that change the dynamic of the legislature with this new appointment? You know, you've got to look at things that people think could be in question. Where does this create uncertainty where there hasn't been uncertainty before? And where does it create certainty where there has been? So, you know, if you're looking at this and you're saying, you know, what about this issue? How would a court with him on it decide that? It might make, you know, your side of the argument more secure. It might make your side of the argument less secure. So if you look at, you know, something like abortion, if you're a um, pro-life Republican in Texas and you would like to see abortion made, you know, completely illegal or harder to get than it is now, you might be looking at this and saying, you know, if he were to help overturn Roe v. Wade or some part of it or just let the states decide, um, you know, like the Casey case, leave Roe v. Wade in place but let states decide, then you're going to push for something that they call a trigger bill. A trigger bill is if the federal government takes its thumb off the scale, then the law in our state will be as follows, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, if you get a Kavanaugh or, frankly, any of the other three that Trump was looking at on the Supreme Court, um, you know, they're going to be an effort in Texas and some other states, you know, that don't already have trigger laws to put trigger laws on the books. They're going to look at other things and say, where in previous rulings could state law take precedence in a way that it wouldn't have been able to in a court with Kennedy? Where's the Supreme Court going to back us up, you know, in ways that they wouldn't do before? And at the same time, I think you're going to see a lot of preemptive legislation, you know, in blue states and even in some red states where they say, you know, we had this position that we thought was pretty secure in the Kennedy court, um, and we don't think it's as secure with, with Kavanaugh or whoever in there, so we need to make some laws in order to, you know, shore up our position on that. They're yeah. going to be doing all kinds of adjustments, whether they're real adjustments or just rhetorical adjustments, you know, almost doesn't matter, but I think you're going to be hearing a lot of the Supreme Court this and the Supreme Court that when the legislature gets together in January. Fascinating. Trigger bills, trigger laws, preemptive bills, preemptive laws. Always learn something, Ross. <laughs> Always walk away with something. Hey, you can learn something. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, you'll get a new piece by Ross Ramsey at Ross Ramsey at texastribune.org. Thank you for the time, Ross. Always a pleasure. A number one in the land. A shoeshine man. Make you shine where you stand. Leave me a tip if you can. I'm a shoe shine man. Well, I can sing, I can dance, I can play the harmonica. I've said to this audience that I think the race is Patrick and Collier, Dan Patrick, the incumbent Republican, Lieutenant Governor versus his opponent, Democratic candidate. Uh, Mike Collier and Mike Collier joins us now on the other side of Texas. How are you, Mr. Collier? Fine, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm I'm feeling a little bit vindicated based upon some polls and stories that have come out in the past few days. I want to be an observer in this race, not an activist in the race by by any stretch. But I just look at where I think people are in my own intuition. And I've said before on the show that I think that this one's neck and neck. And a couple of polls have come out in the past few days that have shown just that, Mike Collier. Right. Well, that's right. We're pleased. We've been working on this for uh, about a year and a half. Actually, I've been working 
on Texas politics and solving the problems for about four years. So you hope to see some progress, and we believe that we are. Yeah, so Texas Tribune down six, and then Breitbart, the D.C. branch of Breitbart, releases down two. Uh, what do you think that right. whenever you read a Breitbart uh, polling uh, and you read that you're down two, what do you think, Mike Collier? Well, I would say this, you know, Jay, it's very encouraging, and I'll tell you why. I, I've always viewed my candidacy and my work in politics as somewhat of an experiment. C- can you go back in time and actually campaign on issues? Um, it's been a very issues-oriented campaign. Um, we'll throw in some picante every once in a while, but the, the essence of this is, uh, turning the election into a referendum on such things as public education. There's a very clear distinction between my opponent and myself. I'm a firm believer in public education. Dan Patrick's taken steps that are viewed as, by many as very hostile to public education. Uh, property taxes. Uh, we have a real problem with property taxes around the state. Um, I'm showing Texans what the source of that problem is. It's state finance. Dan Patrick is uh, is trying to conceal that because really the property tax crisis is is his responsibility. Water is a huge issue around the state. I've been spending time talking about water. Dan Patrick didn't say a word about it. So, like I say, this is a bit of an experiment in old-fashioned politics. Can you charge out there with a point of view on issues and expect to win? Some say you can't, but uh, I believe that you can. And the last thing I'll say on this, Jay, is that, you know, I started working on this five years ago, and what got me into uh, politics in the first instance was we made huge cuts to public education back in 2011, $5.4 $5.4 billion to be precise, and we were told it's because we had a deficit coming, and I smelled a rat. We couldn't couldn't possibly be the reason for those cuts because property taxes pays for schools, and property taxes are going up, not down. And so I, this entire exercise is predicated upon the notion that if you took politics out and put competence in and found out what Texans care about and deliver that, you can win. Uh, and we have stayed on message. We don't wander off out of our lane. There's a lot of pressure right now for me to come charging out and having a hair-on-fire point of view about everything under the sun unrelated to lieutenant governor, and I won't do it. And um, so it's very gratifying to see it. It seems to be working. And I think that that's why whenever I've pointed at races, it seemed to you, and I mean all the races on on the board across the ballot, it seems that you – you were talking about that even though the political climate has changed, we've seen the migrant separations, you've got now the hot button about will Roe v. Wade be taken down the Supreme Court. I mean, it has fluctuated in, in several different directions since you began your candidacy, but you have stayed on message. And I think that that I'm not a political consultant, though I'd like to make consultant money. I don't think I could bear to live with myself if I did. <laughs> But you have, I think that what we've seen from winning campaigns are folks who stay on message. Well, I would say this, Jay, I, I agree with you. I fired um, several people, uh, you know, who would say to me, well, Mike, you know, that's great. That's great that you want to solve problems. But in order for you to be elected, you're, you're going to have to be incendiary and you're going to have to be this and you're going to have to do that. And I've just said, look, I, I don't really, I don't want to run on that basis. I don't want to govern on that basis. What makes this meaningful to me is the uh, almost the experimental nature of it. Can you do it the old-fashioned way? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned, for example, let's talk about the, the situation with migrants on the family. You know, my point of view is we've got to keep the families together because that's consistent with our values. We must also enforce the laws because we want to secure a border. 
And so it really just takes some management competence and perhaps some more resources. Simple as that. The the conversation here lately about uh, Supreme Court justice, my take on that is, you know, let I mean, I, I hope that we can go through this exercise in Washington without too much partisan bickering. Uh, I suspect that that won't be the case. But the lieutenant governor doesn't have a dog in that fight. The lieutenant governor takes the hand that he's dealt and tries to make the most of it for, for the citizens of Texas. So that'll run its course. Then we'll see what the world looks like, and then we'll try to make our best decisions as Texans. Well, now that we've established all that and you staying on message, let me take you off. Uh, should Brett Kavanaugh be confirmed, Mike Collier? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. All I know about him is what I've read about him yesterday and this morning. Uh, you know, I think uh, you can't take politics completely out of uh, the Supreme Court justice process. Um, that needs to run its course. Like I say, uh, in the old days, the the, the uh, Senate would seek to form some sort of consensus because if you had somebody that was um, – acceptable to both parties, then you're less likely to have division and rancor. Uh, you know, we long for that. I doubt we're going to get it. But uh, in terms of Brett Kavanaugh, the man, his point of view, I haven't considered it relevant to my campaign and I haven't studied it. Okay. Uh, fair enough. So let me ask you this, though. And this is a great thing about uh, me having the microphone that I can think out loud. I'm wondering right. about how these numbers will be impacted when and I initially I think when state senators begin to go out to their to their districts uh, to essentially the Patrick lieutenants who begin to go to their district and really begin to campaign against you after let's say Labor Day going into October, do you um, do you think it will there be a win or because these same senators you would if if elected you would be the president of the senate will these same right. senator do you expect them to come out against you or do you think they'll see the numbers and say well uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna speak out too much it's gonna be an interesting dynamic to watch i think so jay i think um first of all in terms of senators going out and campaigning uh to try to prevent me from winning what I, I, it's almost comical to think what will they say to their constituents we don't want mike because he's exposed the property tax crisis and just going to fix it. I mean, I have a hard time imagining that. We don't want Mike because he's got a no. pretty sophisticated point of view on water. So I don't think they're going to campaign all that hard. They don't have much to no. work with. And second, I would say that there's a, a very uh, there's a fair number of even Republican senators in the state. And I think I said this when I was with you the last time, having once been a Republican, um, there's still a moderate element to the Republican Party that would rather see us just solve problems and would prefer not to have, you know, Dan Patrick pulling him and requiring him to do all sorts of things and say all sorts of things to stay in his good graces. I think there's a fair number of Republican senators are going to feel liberated uh, by the fact that Dan Patrick's beat and I'm there because then it's time to roll up our sleeves and start solving these problems. And the problems that we have are technical in nature. Water, for example, that's a, there's, that's a real technical challenge. So let's don't be partisan about it. I mean, it's not like, it's not like Democrats are wet and Republicans are dry. Yeah. Water scent. I mean, water's water. So I, I don't. My my um, expectation all along has been that once we had a, you know, a, just a, a, a moderate leader in the Senate, then we'd have a much healthier discussion about what's right for our state going forward. Yeah, I just just to clarify, by being for listeners who aren't accustomed to Texas, I, I blew past some of these things. 
Mr. Collier, from time to time. But uh, as right. president of the Senate, you would assign chair, uh, chairwomen, chairmen of powerful committees, and I think that. Uh, I think that people would begin to look at their place on the top of the political hill, as it were, and uh, begin to, right. especially if these numbers out of outlets like Breitbart, the national office, begin to trend the way that they are trending. Let me ask you one thing, and to step away from Republicans in the Senate, I remember watching the last, the conclusion of uh, the special session in the Senate, and John Whitmire the dean, a Democrat out of Houston, voiced his favor in effectively looking at uh, consolidating schools as a means to make up for budget shortfalls in the next session. My understanding is that that work is still being done. And again, here on the other side of Texas, consolidation means the end of a town. And then the right. the end of uh, history and a legacy and, and those sorts of things. What would you say to a Whitmire or those who came and spoke to you at this point about consolidations? Or would you put a better priority in I front of them? Oh, yeah, I don't favor. I do not favor consolidation of school districts. Uh, I think that's uh, trying to find so, that, that that's re reflection of a refusal to deal honestly with the issue. The, the problem with public education is is the fact there's not enough money going into it. And so there's all sorts of ways, clever ways to try to figure out, well, how do we solve this problem? You hear people say, you know, legally, legalize gambling, that'll bring in some more money. Make marijuana legal, that'll bring in some more money. Consolidation, that'll bring in some more money. They're ignoring the root cause of the issue, which is funding. And what I've said, um, I think I said this when we were together in uh, Lubbock last time, there is a flaw in the property tax law. It's huge. It benefits only the owners of large commercial industrial properties, which means it works against the interests of homeowners and small businesses. It's called the equal and uniform loophole. Uh, these, the owners of large commercial industries, properties around the state are underpaying their taxes, cheating the system, if you will, by $5 billion a year. The, the Texas Constitution says that everybody's property shall be appraised at market value and taxes are on that basis. Homeowners have that. Small businesses have that. Farmers, ranchers. To the extent they're paying property taxes, it's at market value. Well, the owners of refineries and petrochemical plants and downtown skyscrapers need to be compelled to do the same thing. This isn't raising taxes. It's merely enforcing the law. The solution is very simple. Uh, the lieutenant governor can uh, compel the senators to vote. They will vote to close that loophole because there's not one senator that would dare go back to their district and, and say, well, I left that loophole open because I wanted to... Uh, cheat you on taxes and starve your schools. When we recover that $5 billion, now all of a sudden we can start dealing effectively with the allocation formula, which is really messed up, everybody knows that, and start funding these schools and not have to talk about consolidation, not have to talk about legalizing marijuana, which I don't support, not have to talk about gambling, which I don't support, because all of those are really just meant to distract. Hmm. Well, there you are, staying on message. And I'm going to leave you to the better message. You're calling in uh, from your anniversary trip right now in the middle of a hot campaign. Uh, what what year are you guys into now? Well, so we uh, we, we are celebrating our 29th uh, wedding anniversary. Uh, Suzanne and I met in college. Uh, she was never married. I was never married. We married each other and started our family and have had just an absolutely wonderful uh, 30 years together. We think that we're about a third of the way through our total marriage. 
Hope Springs Eternal. And uh, every year for 25 years of that 29 years, we've gone on a little vacation. And um, that was the deal that I made with her when, when, I, when she said, yep, I'll get behind you if you run for lieutenant governor. But I get my anniversary trip. And how could I say no? Well, there you are. At least it's not in October. <laughs> at, le- at least you're wise enough to get married in July. Mike Collier, thank you for taking time out. Tell Susan thank we you, said Jay. congratulations. Well, thank you very much. Good talking to you. Right. Hey, listen, these guys who we run a – I don't have the Buddy Holly rave on music, but we try to run an independent radio program here that you can come to and that you can trust, that we are going to give you the straight skinny without agenda. I do this not as a means of income. This is not my primary income. It's an opportunity to – Uh, get out into the public square and to have the opportunity to access people who could really affect our way of life and and quite frankly our children's future and that's why I do what I do and so the the people who advertise on this program I really encourage you to get out there and to support them and one of them is Lubbock File Room providing safe and secure document storage and shredding services to Lubbock and the surrounding area since 1992. I used them. You should check them out too. You don't want to go throw all those HR documents just into the dumpster. Throw trade secrets into the dumpster for a free and hassle-free estimate. Call LubbockFileRoom.com at 806-744-7666 today. Now, I've not taken calls during this program, nor have I answered texts, because, full disclosure, I'm not here. This has all been pre-recorded, as will be Thursday and Friday, because me and my wife are on a trip. We've got four young children, and we've got our 10 and two nine-year-olds and a four-year-old who are all in the care of trusted relatives and we are enjoying ourselves down in Central Texas. And uh, I just wanted you to know why we aren't interacting with the audience right now. However, I want to take this time to say to you that if you have stories, you know, I have different authors on the show and uh, songwriters on the sto- show. If you've got people who you think would be of interest on this side of Texas to come on, uh, shoot me an email, jay at othersideoftexas.com. We'll reach out. We'll do a segment with them. We have a great week coming up next week. Uh, Recorded shows on Thursday and Friday, but recordings of people who matter and who you need to listen to. And they may be recordings that you've heard from before. But we're putting them up with some intentionality. And for me, the grade right now is 9%. We need to get voter turnout well above 9%. Whatever you want to vote on, that number needs to be at 25%. I'm just imagining the boat, the U-boats riding up to Normandy. Come on, what are we doing? We're going to have a democracy. We got to have, or a republic, or whatever kind of nuance you want to put on it. We're going to have people out there voting. Uh, Next week, we have a great slew of shows. And we're going to have veterinarians on who disagree with the Texas Tech uh, vet school plan and 
I'll engage that conversation. We'll have that discussion. Um, golly, other a, a great slew of shows coming up next week. But for now, for Ross Ramsey and for Mike Collier and myself, I want to thank you for tuning in. And I appreciate the gaining popularity of this show. It's flattering to me. I really appreciate you making time to tune in. And we will be with you again tomorrow right here on the other side of Texas. OtherSideOfTexas.com. OSTX show on Twitter and Other Side of Texas on Facebook. So, signing off, we'll see you next time via Con Dios, right here from the Other Side of Texas.